I love that you're creating an experience that that is not only you know tactile that you feel when you sit down, but it, it's visual and and you and you can taste it as well. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. There are venues that have become entrenched in the culinary history of Australia. Some with one owner that have stood the test of time. Others are standalone restaurants that, with the passion of multiple owners, continue to colour the culinary landscape. Brian Geraghty is a chef and owner of Barara Waters Inn. Brian, how are you? Very, very good, Anthony. How are you? I'm good. It's great to get you on the show. You um, you own one of Australia's most famous restaurants with an incredible history. What does that feel like? Uh, it feels somewhat like you live up to expectations, but then also at the same time, you know, you kind of got to do your own thing and, and feel it out and and create the environment that you would like to create for it. But it is very interesting Almost every diner has a historical story when they dine with you, be it from the 70s or the 80s or the 90s. So it's a very interesting place to work. How do you strike that balance of sort of sort of your obligation to the past and the incredible history that it does have and, and wanting to do what you do as well? Is there, is there a balance you need to strike? I, I think that you, you need to pay gratitude and homage to the past and acknowledge it but then also create your own story. I think everyone, everyone wants to go to a restaurant and, and feel as if um, they, they, there's, there's a movement within the staff and the food and the, and the experience, which they, they can actually feel is, is natural and organic. So it's, it's to acknowledge that it's there, but also to, to write your own story. It's an interesting balance to strike. It, it not only has an amazing history, but it's just its location as well is, is quite fascinating too. Tell us a little bit about Barara Waters Inn. So, um, effectively, uh, it has no road, um, which that is its biggest um, kind of interesting point in regards to the location. And then also, uh, it can be rather problematic uh, for logistics, and on the but but it's what makes it amazing, and and then the fact as well, um, the Glenn Merkett who um, designed the building, um, obviously that is also quite a little um, you know feather in the cap. It, it, it's a very beautiful building to 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 work in and to dine in. So it, it's very interesting to have almost from every from every position in the kitchen you can see through a, a, a glass door or a window or the pass out to you know the Hawkesbury River or you know a sandstone cliff or wallabies jumping by or snakes you know sunning themselves on the deck. So it's very it's very Australiana. Tell us a little bit about the logistics that you just briefly mentioned. You know you've got to get customers there, but you also got to get produce as well. What, what goes on to make it all happen? So look, it's 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 a labour of love, and I do the I, I do the largest amount of it. So um, you know, I would go to the markets, um, you know, once or twice a week, and and get all the fresh produce and the um, the seafood as well. Just one day a week, I'll I'll do that, and then for all the other deliveries, they make it up to the restaurant. But we need to kind of start running on Thursdays because we're open for Thursdays lunch, and it's. Um, when we get all the goods there. So can't kind of wait on a delivery for seafood to arrive to the restaurant at 11 when you're fully booked at, you know, 12. So it's, it's, it's hard getting it in, but it's also probably the, what most people 
everyone's like, oh, it must be really, really hard to get it in. But probably the hardest part is getting the waste out. Like, yeah, well, it's just, it's more intensive. You know, if you, if, if you work at a restaurant in the city, you might, you know, put it into the bin and then, you know, wheel the bin to the rubbish room. Our rubbish room, you need to get, you need to get the rubbish, get it down as small as possible, get it onto a boat, drive it up the Hawkesbury River, take it to, yeah, yeah, yeah. See, no one ever, <laughs> no one ever thinks about this one. Wine bottles as well, like you, you'd fit, or, or like sparkling water bottles. It's just, it's laborious. It's just things that aren't considered. And getting it in is hard, but getting it out is just as hard, if not harder. Do the logistics sort of, um, does that affect the sort of offering that you want to do or are you pretty much able to do whatever you want? No, no, no. We, um, we kind of work in a, uh, like a single sitting 32-seat uh, capacity and, and that's, that's the way that, that the restaurant has to work. Um, look, there's, there's advantages and disadvantages to having such a small dining room and I think one thing that you need to take into consideration um, is that it can't be scalable. We, we can't do, you know, a big inner city restaurant turning tables and getting them in and getting them out. We are a labor of love for the clientele and for the kitchen. So it's it, like we are, not, we are not cheap, we are not accessible, and we're not easy to get to. So everyone's made a journey, so we just kind of keep it as small as possible. But that's probably the way that I've always wanted to cook. So I think that's, that's the best way for a restaurant to be. You mentioned that many people that come to the restaurant have their own story of the history of the restaurant and the experiences that they've had. Um, give, give us a brief sort of history um, that you know of sort of the restaurant and the different operators that it's had. So um, uh, Genesis was in 1928, uh, but it opened up as effectively a little tea house, fish and chip shop and fuel. Um, and it kind of made its way through the 30s and 40s um, into that position. Um, then in the late 50s, early 60s, it was purchased by um, a man of infamy who actually just passed away this week, um, Rocky Gattelari. Um Yeah, uh, so he was a, a former Australian uh, boxing champion and um, turned it into a somewhat Italian restaurant uh, serving, you know, spaghetti and, and, and uh, lasagna. Yeah. Yeah, and then yeah, that was colourful past. Uh, but then um, the trio of Gay Bilson, Tony Bilson, and Glenn Merkett. Obviously, Glenn Merkett being the architect, but back then he was you know, you know wet behind the ears, twenty eight. And same with their Gay and Tony. They um, they had decided to to take something on. They wanted to do something very similar to the Waterside Inn. And uh, when you see the parallels, and I, I worked with Tony at Bilson's restaurant. So um, when you see the parallels between uh, the Waterside Inn and Barrow Waters Inn, not only in the name, but um, also in the fact that, okay, the Waterside Inn does have a, um, a road access, but it is very popular to make your way up the Thames uh, and, you know, join in at the back of the restaurant. It is a bit of a, a thing which they really wanted to bring to Barrow Waters Inn. So they, um, they stripped out that building and built the, the dining room on top of the old sandstone foundation. And, um, and from there on, it was kind of struck into this restaurant of absolute infamy, you know, globally. Um, it's such a well-known and, and, and famous restaurant. It was kind of like the, the restaurant of the time for, um, for, for Australia and globally, um, just in regards to like cuisine and architecture. And uh, Tony left in 84 and Gay kept running it until 96. She went off and opened another well-known restaurant named Benelong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, then uh, Martin Toplitsky took over in 96. So Martin Toplitsky was the old sous chef um, under uh, Yanni and Gay. 
Yanni Christus, another well-known name in, in Australian food. Yeah, uh, he went off and opened a restaurant named MG Garage. But um, but then uh, yeah, Martin ran it up until uh, like the very late nineties. Then he sold it to the current owner, so um, Jeremy Laws, who is now my landlord. Um, he ran it for a few years, and then um, Deep Sawyer, another well-known chef from Restaurant Forty One, he took it on and ran it for four and a half years, and then um, I uh, walked into it in two thousand and twelve. Been there, been there ever since. It's such an extraordinary, iconic um, venue and um, full of history. You, how did it? How did you end up with the keys to the building? So, um, I was um, I was working with Tony at Bilson's Restaurant, and uh, unfortunately, um, even though we had three chef hats, we did manage to to um, to kind of go bankrupt, which was. Not an uncommon story when you're working at the high end. Um, so, uh, and 2012, that was a terrible year for a lot of restaurants. There was a lot of restaurants in Sydney that didn't make it through that year. Balzac and uh, Bacasse, Bilson's. It, it was it was a pretty atrocious year that year. And um, I was just off doing my own thing. I, I wanted to reposition myself and figure out what I was doing because I didn't really have a story. All I had was technique. I'd, I'd worked my way through through France and, and London and America, and I was I was technically quite good but I didn't really know what I wanted to cook. I just knew that I could. Um, that might sound arrogant, a bit of hubris to it, but like technically I, I had, um, I had a, worked at a lot of restaurants and I'd really knuckled down on my skills. So um, I just wanted to figure out what I was doing. I ended up taking a job at a bar. I was just working in a bar. And then Tony in classic Tony style just calls me up one day, nine o'clock, and he goes, do you want to run Brow Waters in? <laughs> and I was like, that's like, because like Tony, Tony is yeah. That's just Tony's life, you know. Like he's he's he was never really um um not moving on an idea. Um, he was he was always he was always moving. One thing to take from from his life was an inspirational kind of character. But he was like, "Do you want to do it?" And I was like, "Well, I'm not doing much else." And I I, I went out to well, I was just literally just working in a bar, and uh, I went up there with him uh, with Jeremy the the owner, the landlord, and Tony and his wife and his kids. And uh, there was also um, Robbie Faluna. He was out there as well. So he was the old restaurant manager from Bilson's. And it's like, we need to open this up in three or four months. And um, we did. But um, it was uh, unfortunate. Uh, Tony couldn't see eye to eye with them, um, with uh, Jeremy on a, on a few things. Um, so um, Tony decided that it wasn't going to be the right fit for him. And he, he made his way. And, and then I... I gambled everything and, and it appears, it appears like I won. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I want to explore everything you've been doing there and the, the challenges and successes that you've had over the last sort of decade. Um, but take us back to when you were young, what, what sort of role did food play for you growing up? I think this is, this is a narrative that, that a lot of chefs kind of take. Um, you know, I'd love to say that I came from a, you know, a rich Italian background where, you know, my nonna was making pasta in the kitchen every Sunday and, you know, my dad was, you know, you know, rolling gnocchi or something like that, but it wasn't really like that for me. Um, I just grew up in a, um, in a, in a rough end of town on the central coast and, um, I wasn't really that good at school and, um, I did want to challenge myself and I was actually working as a kitchen hand and, and I, this is how bad I was at school. Um, 
it came to the end of year nine and the teachers actually said that they probably didn't think it was the best idea for me to continue. <laughs> They're like, we don't really think this is working for you. And um, I mentioned that uh, where I was working. And they're like, oh, if you want, you can you can jump in and, and be an apprentice because we're going to need one next year. So that, w- that was it for me. And then I jumped in and I realized that um, straight away, um, more than a love of food, it was the love of the, the, the environment and the action and the, and, and, and the pressure. I really, really enjoyed that. I, I've, I've, always, I've always kind of said only diamonds are forged under pressure. So if you can – I, I use that um, – to the best of my ability. And then by the time I started working at some serious restaurants, I really started to kind of understand that, that, that I did love what I was doing. But, but the genesis was just me. I needed an escape from, from, from a pretty atrocious school life. And um, I facilitated it with food, most definitely. What were some of those serious restaurants you just mentioned where you, it's sort of the world of food sort of really opened up for you? Um, short period of Tets, the Cass. Um, Astral, most definitely Astral. Um, a little restaurant, um, which it was kind of on the landscape, then off the landscape. As, as quick as it came, it kind of went, but it was amazing working for a chef named David Pegram. He was the old head chef of Tets. Um, Forbes and Burton. Yeah, what a great restaurant. Truly, what a great restaurant. So amazing to see what can be done with a small team. Um, and then, you know, I went on to, I went on to bigger restaurants where where I kind of realized then the bigger restaurants and the scalability of it is kind of challenging to be, you know, a a true artisan to food, smaller restaurants, smaller restaurants are kind of really where the, where it can all come together and, or it can all fall apart because you're not, you're not, you're not relying on massive finances or, you know, beautiful dining room or, or, you know, a a wine list as, as long as your arm with, you know, you know, Chateau de Kems and, you know, Cornas from, from 1993 you kind of you need to have a small wine list and 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 pretty you know knowledgeable front of house and very gifted chefs and and it, it's a lovely environment to work in the smaller environments but i kind of fell in love with that through and um, working with dave pegram do you have any stories of what it was like working with dave just an absolute laugh like like truly he he was he was probably probably the first chef that really taught me that mentoring is really key you know, because there's kind of this, and and I've worked through these restaurants a lot, where um, you kind of put into the um, you kind of put into the pressure cooker to see how much you can handle. You know, so it's like pretty aggressive behaviour or you know non-constructive words, you know, that kind of that kind of very extreme fine dining mentality that a lot of chefs have. It's like I I'm not sure as to whether that's really beneficial for the industry on a whole, but it gets you what you want instantly. But, but, but you get what you want instantly, but then maybe six months to a year and a half in, you might be looking for a new staff member. And, and then you need to go back to the, back to the beginning where you need to find the right staff member again, who's willing to do the hours and, and, and then you need to retrain them. There's nothing, there's nothing less valuable as a business owner, having to consistently retrain people, the same job that you taught someone four years ago because of your behavior. So I really learned that from Dave that like he, he really just wanted to teach everyone as much as, as they could in the kitchen. Mm. Yeah. You, you mentioned that Astral had a, a big impact on you. Sean Connolly was the chef there. What, did, what, what was he like to work with? 
great guy, really great guy. Good laugh, good Yorkshire lad, um, and and his chef as well. He was from uh, from Newcastle. Uh, Tony Gibson, amazing chef, um, really really good. It was probably the first time that was the the first restaurant that I worked at where I was like, okay, I think Europe's a go, because um, because I am. Um, I'd done a bit of time in Europe. I was working at a, a restaurant in Dublin called Patrick Gibo, two Michelin star. But that was only because um, my partner at the time, she was um, studying overseas. Uh, so I kind of wanted to, to get over there as well. I didn't, I didn't see the point in, in um, staying in Australia. So I'm, I'm Irish born. I was, I was born there. I moved to Australia in 88. So it was very easy. She was studying in Boston. So I thought it would be easy if I was working in, if I was working and living in Dublin and she was, you know, studying and living in, in Boston, it's only about a four hour flight. So it's a lot closer than, it's a lot closer than Sydney to, to, to Boston. So, 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 um, there was like that six months where, where I worked in that restaurant and that kind of really opened my eyes up. I came back and, and got to, got to, uh, to Astral. And then I was like, no, 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 I'm definitely going back to Europe. So I made my way back over there. But if, if it wasn't for Sean and if it wasn't for Tony, I probably wouldn't have done that. I kind of, I kind of realized back then at least because there was this great period in, in Sydney dining and um, which I'm sure you, you remember where, um, bank had shut and all of, not that that was, <laughs> that sounds, sounds facetious. That sounds facetious. Uh, let me preface it. Bank shut. And then so many amazing restaurants opened after that. So Liam left and went back to Ireland. Oh, he went to South Africa actually. But, um, but, but then, uh, you know, Asiet opened, Bacasse opened, Balzac opened, all of those chefs who are now just, you know, absolutely cemented in, in Sydney dining folklore. They just opened up these great restaurants. And I realized then, seeing they'd all worked in Europe, it was kind of like Australia was high school and Europe was college. And I needed to go to university. And I wanted to go to an Ivy League. So I ended up going to Pierre de Terre in London. So. T- take us into that kitchen. Do you have any stories of what that was like? Without a doubt, when it comes to to the most formative years of my life, it was that period. Um, so Shane um, Osborne, originally from originally from Perth, um, just one of the most hardworking, dedicated, knowledgeable, compassionate chefs that I've ever worked for in my life. Um, technically, second to none. I think everyone realized that he did that Netflix show and final table, I believe. Um, and, uh, and my God, like every single test that was put in front of me, just absolutely annihilated it. Just such a, such a gifted individual. But, but then a chef that's always in his kitchen, uh, an owner who's always in the building, uh, someone who was invested in investing in people. So he really taught me a lot. Um, such an amazing kitchen to work in, such great guys as well. Like really great group of men and women that were working in that kitchen. It was it was truly amazing. You sort of made your way around the globe um, doing stages at various restaurants. Was there any sort of moment or experience that really stands out that sort of helped direct the path that you've gone on? Mm. My staging life was was probably one of the more lower points, to be frank. Um, it's, it's, I, I realized that, um, well, I suppose it's like silver linings and all that. 
I think if people are willing to work for free and and dedicate a proportionate amount of time on this planet to help you get your dream over the line, uh, be nice. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that was that was probably one thing that I was like I'm I'm generally very good to my staff. And generally they're very good to me. I think that's a very important basis to learn. And I think that's probably one thing that I learned from, from my, my periods of staging, especially, especially through, especially through France. That can be a nightmare. I did, um, I did a service, my first service and, um, and in, in, in Paris restaurants for Pascal Barbeau and, and, um, for the the few days that we opened up, uh, the whole kitchen was speaking English, and I was you know stupidly studying Rosetta Stone France French. I thought like I I kind of had the base skill enough to get over the line, um, and everyone was speaking English. I was like, oh my god, this isn't going to be as bad as I thought. That was until the first check of the first service came in, and then it in, instantly went from 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 English to French faster than you could faster than you could say Samaj, and and um, like it. Like there was a hubris to it. Like they knew I was under the pressure and then, you know, I'm starting to get yelled at for, for how long it's going to take to cook a scallop. And I'm trying to translate what they're saying in French in my brain and then trying to translate it back to what it would be in English and then trying to translate it back again into my mouth in French. And it was just like, it was atrocious. And, and, and I know what they were doing and I understand why they do it. And it's just to see how much you're willing to take because it, it's pretty hard to, it's pretty hard to, to not work with dedicated people. So there's interesting ways to find out dedication. And I think that's what they were attempting to do. But it was, you know, it was a challenging day, to say the least. What was it like for you when you came back to Australia? Um, challenging. I, I, I went from, I went from Pierre de Terre directly to Key, um, which was very different. Like Pierre de Terre, we only had, you know, seven or eight guys working a service. You go to Key, you got seven or eight guys working a, working a section. So it's a very, yeah, it's really, really different. It's kind of one thing that you could always be thankful for working in a small two Michelin starred restaurant in London is every single day we did the same amount of covers. It doesn't matter what day it was. So you're kind of like, kind of like a little bit more manageable for, um, for your day. And you knew how much pressure you were going to be under. And then once, once you could handle that pressure, then that was, that was, um, kind of the base level, but, but when you walk in a key, it's just like, oh, what are we doing tonight? Oh, we've got, you know, 180 people upstairs for a function and then we're doing, you know, 210. Well, probably not that much, maybe like 110 in the restaurant. It's like, oh, okay, we're doing, you know, 300 customers tonight. And it's, it's, it's very different, very, very different. So that was a little bit, that was a little bit much for me at the beginning. And it wasn't the workload. It was just like, I couldn't really do what I wanted to do. It was kind of like, you, you were surviving every day. So then I, I made my way to Bilson's. That's where I met Tony. Um, and that was, that was very different, but Tony just had this, it was a big dining room. It would see about 80 and they'd turn a few tables. We'd probably do about a hundred a service, but there was 12 of us in the kitchen. So it was manageable. And, um, it wasn't lunch dinner. We only did lunches on a Friday and every other day was dinner. So, you could get in and get your stuff done and get boxed and get ready and kind of be happy with how the day was going to go. Tony Bilson's influence on the culinary landscape is was quite incredible. Um, and he was quite an incredible and eccentric man as well. Do you have any stories of your interactions with him? Yeah, he was, um, he was, he was, he was very set in his ways. Um, uh, but at the same time, an innovator. 
which is very interesting. It, it was it was a very it was a very interesting juxtaposition to work with the man because he he was kind of like I remember he would all say curry works but nothing. And it's like no, but it has to work with something, right, Tony? And he's like it works with nothing. And I was, <laughs> it's like is this new Vogue cuisine? I'm not too sure. <laughs> but but um, it, I think I think what, the the most amazing thing about Tony was that he nothing was ever challenging for him. That was an amazing thing. He was he was always up for it. He's like, oh, we're going to open a restaurant at Low Wines. It's like, okay, Tony, let's let's do that. And he's like, oh, we're also opening up in Shanghai. It's like, not a problem. We're kind of trying to run a three out of here as well, man. He's like, oh, we're doing a function for Air France. It's going to be. <laughs> It's like when is this in October? <laughs> like in a, in a four week period, it's just like okay, this is going to be challenging. I remember we um, uh, Tony, uh, Serge Dancero went to went to Indonesia with um, with myself and um, and Serge's uh, um, head chef at the time, film named Ben Amy, who's a really good guy, and um, and we were doing degs for a thousand people a night. It was insane. Yeah, I know it was it was crazy. It was truly crazy. Like never in my life have I ever experienced anything like it. It's like I wouldn't even I wouldn't even want to do that many customers. We do ten thousand customers a year for our orders in. It's like one tenth one tenth of our annual revenue uh, annual customers in 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 a you know a six hour period. It was madness, but he loved doing it. He really loved getting out there and and, and showing people what what he knew and 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 his skill set and his cuisine. What did you take from your time with Tony Bilson? I think it, it a an appreciation of, of, of the past um, in regards to like showing respect to the past and, and being able to adapt that to your skill set and move it forward. Yeah, he's, he, was, he was a character, that's for sure. <laughs> Talk to me about Barara Waters in When you first sort of took it over, how different was it back then when you started sort of creating your menu compared to what we see today? Oh, look, I think... I think that when you when you're in that first role, either you, everyone plays it safe. Well, look, may, maybe not everyone, maybe just me. When um, when 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 I got there, I knew I knew what worked, but I didn't have a story, right? Like I didn't know what I wanted to cook. All I knew is that like oh, I've worked here and this works, and I've worked here and that works, and you know, kind of like this, you know, raw, steamed, fried roasted sweets kind of degustation view of everything do you know what i mean which is which is good it's you know tried and tested and, and, and it, it does work but i didn't have my i didn't have my narrative i was just kind of i was just kind of not only me but like i think a lot of people that have worked at the restaurant it's kind of like is Barrow waters in a french restaurant and it's like well you know by the intro that you made you know this iconic australian you know destination mcg like kind of lore about it and 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 you know and then what are we going to you know let's cook you know pont neuf chateaubriand and you know briat sabran for cheese course it's like it doesn't really make sense you know as much fun as it could be opening up a bottle of chateau nice de pap you might want to open up i don't know like a beautiful kunawara red and it's like that is it a showpiece for australia or are we going to be running cheese cloches so unfortunately i cuz i wasn't i wasn't old enough or or i didn't understand the landscape enough and i just went with what i knew which was very deep seating in 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 french cuisine and i kind of went down that road and and you know when you 
you're looking at the Hawkesbury River. You've got just Hawkesbury sandstone all around you. You're in a, a tin roof building, sandstone base designed by Glenn Merkett with all Australian architecture around and deep and rich Aboriginal culture through the Hawkesbury. And you're cooking French food with tablecloths. And I'm like, it, it took me a few years to realize what I was doing. And I was doing it all wrong. And then I kind of switched it to this this new all Australian um, understanding of what food is, which is a really hard question to, to pin down. Like it doesn't, it, it, it's a very hard question. You know, it's really, really hard to, to kind of find that answer. But, you know, we're, we're trying to do our best. We're soldiering on through that question every single day and even to this day. How much have you changed and your food changed going on that journey? A lot, a lot. I think it, it, this isn't the first time that anything has been that, that anything like this has been said. But yeah, you know, a really good chef understands what doesn't need to be on the plate as opposed to what does. And then th- that's that's one thing that that it takes a while to learn that because it's kind of like a it's like it's the same as the first thing that I said about being French. You know what you you know what works. It's like I'll I'll, I'll bedazzle them with technical prowess. And it's like maybe maybe people don't realize that, you know, all of those ingredients that you've just turned into, you know, I don't know, a terrine would have been much nicer as a salad. You know? Yeah, it's it's it, it took me a while to, to, to get my head around that. And I made things simpler and focus more on flavor. And and probably focus more on on them, the cooking of proteins as opposed to the garnish of proteins. And I think, I think when it comes to, to the dining public, that's, that's the most important thing. They, they really, you know, if, if it looks good, that's amazing. Uh, but, but it's, it's a secondary concern to the diner because that's really for you. You know, that's really, that's, Oh, look what I did with this. And it's like, uh, well, you know, how's the taste? <laughs> One thing, one thing Shane Osborne used to tell me uh, was, uh, and I didn't realize it until recently, or well, about five years ago, he'd say, cook as if everyone's blind. I was like, oh, okay, make it tasty. It's like, no, no, no. It's, aesthetics is, is a secondary concern. Yeah. It takes, it takes time and understanding to get your head around that comment, but yeah. Can you um, talk us through the menu a little bit? Is there, is there a dish or two that sort of exemplifies... Um, what you're doing and where you're at with your food? Well, look, I, th- I think when when you come to the position where I have with with where where the cuisine is, I think the most important thing is that I've, I've realised that, and this is just for me because people might find this a contentious point, like I, I honestly believe that Australian food is built around immigration into Australia. I don't think, I don't think that it's, you know, um, this deep, rich history that we have of, of you know, ancient, you know, recipes that have been shared down generation from generation or like provenances that only make a certain particular type of cheese, you know, or, you know, this kind of like cultural backbone to cuisine. Yeah, like my, um, my partner, she's Swedish and in February for the end of Easter or the beginning not too bad being a bad catholic um the uh they eat this this type of uh bun called semla which is effectively like a it's like a cardamom brioche that's been cut out and hollowed and then filled with this like almond cream 
And it's like, the, you can only, it's delicious, don't get me wrong, but you can only eat it in February. They don't make it any other time of the year, you know? They were, other parts of the world have this kind of like societal, cultural background to food, but for us it has to be immigration. You know, like like at the every single town seems to have a Thai restaurant, a Japanese sushi bar, uh, a chicken shop, a church, and a liquor store. And it's like, it's, 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 it, and you don't see that in other parts of the world because I've traveled around the world. Like it's, 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 it's so amazing, like the backbone that we have. So when it comes to things that are on the menu, I've kind of adopted all cultural backgrounds to try and figure out what Australian food is. Um, one thing that hasn't taken its, making its way off the menu since its genesis in 2009 is effectively a chow and mushy, uh, but built around Hawkesbury M. Uh, mud crab and then macadamia miso so effectively it's japanese to be frank but but with with the right touches it's moved its way out of that and then into the hawkesbury and and yeah macadamia miso that we make in house and it's very umami-ish and really rich it's got this great sweetness and saltiness this beautiful balance between the two and the texture is fantastic like silken tofu it's really really lovely You've got a restaurant that's not very easy to get to, and you certainly can't get there by car. You know, the last couple of years, this this podcast has detailed the sort of um, trauma and everything that has gone on to the restaurant industry. What, what sort of impact did it have on you and Barrara Waters Inn? Well, look, I think, I think, is this pandemic chat? Is that the... Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, I think we, we weren't, we weren't afforded the opportunity that everyone else had to kind of do takeaway. Yeah. We weren't running veg boxes up and down the Hawkesbury river, nor is the, you know, Uber eats on jet skis. So, so we kind of, we were in a pickle, you know, I think a lot of people were, um, we, we soldiered on through, um, we had a lot of support, uh, from, um, a lot of great clientele. Like they just kind of knew the situation that we we're in. They're like, oh, we'll just buy a gift voucher. Um, I think there was one day we'd, we'd mentioned that we'd mentioned that we weren't obviously doing takeaways, but our online store is open, and uh, you know you can buy gift vouchers, or we have an alcohol shop as well, and a lot of kind of like takes on Australian classic uh, classic international cocktails with an Australian twist, and they're like home delivered, uh, and. Uh, I think in the first day we did like twenty thousand dollars worth of sales after just doing an EDM. Yeah, I know. It was crazy. It was almost a touch too much. <laughs> Cheers, guys. Thank you. But come on. Uh, so uh, yeah, no, we um, we just sold it on through. And I think one one good thing was though, um, due to the location and as always, blessing or curse, you know, this kind of silver lining to it all. Um, when you couldn't leave New South Wales, but you were allowed to leave your house, like. Are you going to go to Martin Place to go for a meal, or are you going to go to Barrow? So we were lucky. As, as soon as as soon as we were able to open, my God, we were busy. But when we weren't allowed to open, so it was like nine months out of a two year period, and when we couldn't open, it was it was pretty rough. You've uh, had the restaurant for um, over a decade now. Um, how how much have you changed, and um, how different are you compared to back then? Very different, like definitely. Um, I think um, like a a big aspect is I think I've changed a lot because I have kids now. I didn't when I got there, and and I think also when when I got there, I really wanted to prove something, 
And it, it's kind of like this weird thing where I think a lot of people want to prove something to someone. And it's like, oh, no, just prove things to yourself day by day. And it took me a very long time to do that. I think I think the, the, the more that I've proved to myself, the better the restaurants got. I definitely am a, a more relaxed character as well. I'm not, I'm not as, you know, intense or full on or extreme or as I used to be, I'm, I'm, I'm a lot better, um, at, at being cool, calm, collected and, and running it as opposed to being erratic, um, high maintenance and, uh, you know, yelling. <laughs> so, I think, well, I do, I do think that children do temper you in life. So, you know, that's, um, that's definitely been a big change as well. Well, you've definitely um, creating another mark in history for this incredible venue at Burrell Waters Inn. What do you love about what you do? Uh, I love that you kind of, you're creating a, um, an experience. Um, that that is not only you know tactile that you feel when you sit down, but it, it's visual and and you and you can taste it as well. It's lovely to be able to take people out of their life just for a very short period of time, and then just put them into an area where there's no phone reception. That is that is that is amazing. It's shocking seeing people almost have to relearn how to engage with people on a face to face basis. But um, it's 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 truly lovely to 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 be able to facilitate that and just create that environment and and then really just like write write the narrative i think when so with this all australian thing uh like trying to figure out what australian food was we also at the same time got rid of all foreign wine uh, so everything on the wine list from the spirits to the beers to 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 the soft drinks to to the water to the food that we source, to the farms that it is purchased on. They're all Australian. Um, and I think that's really a, an amazing an amazing place to be creative is painting yourself into a corner because, you know, you might come up with an unbelievably great, you know, oyster dish and it's like, oh, you know, let's get Colomaray Chablis or something along those lines because it's mineral and it works well. I was like, yeah, because it's mineral and it works well because it's always mineral and it always works well. So... So, but unfortunately, uh, we don't have that in Australia. Uh, so we're going to have to find an Australian wine producer that's creating Chablis or, you know, non-oaked Chardonnay uh, with the same amount of mineral drive. And it's, it's challenging for everyone. But in that challenge, you find things that you never would have found before. We have wines on the wine list that are coming from Queensland. You know, this is, this is not, this is not really what, most people are looking for, <laughs> especially the dining public, but, but they're great wines and, and, and same with the cuisine, you know, like, yeah, it would be great to be able to fly in some Kobe Wagyu and, you know, but we, we can't do that because we don't have that here because we're not in Japan. It has to be that, 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 that all Australian menu and all Australian wine list. And from that, you can actually find things that you'd never be looking for before. It's like you, you have to be most constructive when you're under pressure, right? To find the right answer. Well, Brian, it's an absolute honor to chat with you today on Deep in the Weeds. And I know there's so much more to talk about. So um, please keep in touch and we'll have to catch up again soon. Yeah, no, most definitely. It's been an absolute pleasure. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. 
Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well. <laughs>